0: if you take your Bibles again and turn with me this time to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In the church Bibles, that's page 1148, or the larger print Bibles, 1776. 1 Corinthians 7. Last week we looked at verses 1 to 9 of this chapter, and we heard Paul as he began to talk about marriage. He spoke about what marriage is for. And in the passage we're about to read this morning, Paul continues to talk about marriage, but he puts marriage now into a much bigger context. That bigger context is our calling as Christians to live for God in whatever situation we find ourselves in. So we're going to read chapter 7, verse 10, down to verse 24. To the married, I give this command not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say this I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although, if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who is a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. This is God's word. And a preacher called Mark Dever gives us the key to understanding this passage he describes a tendency that we all have to one degree or another. We tend to think that worldly circumstances are all important. And when we think this way, we naturally conclude that the problems we have will be solved by simply changing our circumstances. We think of our marital status and our employment as the all-important aspects of our lives. The things that shape and determine our goodness, happiness, satisfaction, and general usefulness to God. And when these areas of our lives are not going well, we seek to change them. We think the answers lie in different worldly circumstances. So we confidently, restlessly, maybe even desperately act to change our situation. We seek a new job, a new social status, a spouse, or if we already have one, a different spouse. It is that tendency in us all that lies behind this passage. Paul has that tendency in mind as he writes these words. And his message to us is this Forget about if only. Don't spend your time longing for or straining towards different circumstances. Don't go through life obsessing on what looks to be the greener grass over there. Why are we not to live like that? Because our circumstances are not all important. Changing our circumstances is not the key to happiness. Satisfaction and usefulness to God. And as we start to look at this, I have to give the same acknowledgement I gave last week. I know this is going to raise things that are painful for some of you. They were painful for many of the Christians in Corinth as well. Paul understands that and he takes it into account here. Our passage breaks into two pretty clear sections. In the first section, Paul deals with a big issue. Then in the second section, he shows us the bigger issue that lies behind the first section. First of all, in verses 10 to 16, when your marriage is not what you want it to be. Paul is going to mention two groups of married people, and to both of those groups... His command is the same. Stay married. Who are the two groups in these verses? Well, you'll notice in verse 10, Paul addresses the married. Then in verse 12, he turns to the rest. It turns out the rest are also married people. The difference is, verses 10 and 11 are speaking about marriages where the husband and wife are both Christians. Then in verses 12 and following, Paul is speaking about marriages that are mixed. They're mixed in the sense that only one spouse is a Christian. So starting with Christian marriages, Paul says in verse 10, to the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. In other words, I'm about to repeat something that Jesus said during his ministry on earth. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record Jesus' teaching on this. To the rest, I say this. If any, To the married, I give this command, sorry, in verse 10. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. Don't be confused by the use of two different words here, separate and divorce. Today, we use those words to mean two different things when it comes to marriage. But in the first century, they meant the same thing. They both referred to ending a marriage. And they're used interchangeably in this passage. And the command to Christian couples is, don't end the marriage. Don't either of you end it. But if it has already ended, or if it does end because one of you disobeys God's command, then your options are, either remain unmarried or be reconciled to your spouse. What you can't do is marry someone else. Why not? Because God has forbidden you to divorce. If you do divorce, you're still married as far as God's concerned, no matter if you have a piece of paper saying that you're divorced. You're still married, and if you marry someone else, you will therefore be committing adultery. That's what those verses are getting at. Now, if you were to go and read Matthew chapters 5 and 19, you would notice that Jesus did make one exception to this rule. He said if there was sexual immorality, if one spouse was refusing to stay sexually faithful to their wife or their husband, then Jesus permitted divorce. The spouse who had been wronged could divorce the other. Paul does not mention that exception here. And the reason is the Corinthians live in a culture where they do not need any encouragement about possible reasons to divorce. But they do need lots of encouragement to take their marriage commitment seriously. One historian tells us about the culture these Christians are living in. In 1st century Corinth, men and women could divorce their partners by enacting what has been called a divorce by separation. That is simply by telling their partner to leave or by leaving themselves. Divorce was very common and probably most marriages ended before the death of a partner. Marriage certificates were worded as though they expected the marriage to end in divorce, not death. And in the face of that cultural situation, Paul calls Christian wives and husbands to a counter-cultural lifestyle. A lifestyle that honors God's design for marriage. And God designed marriage as a lifelong commitment. That design was set out in Genesis chapter 2. It was reaffirmed by Jesus in his public teaching. And here it is repeated by Paul to Christians in a culture that is totally flouting God's design for marriage. Now, our culture may not have gone quite as far as Corinth in the first century, but aren't we well on the way? In the UK, 42% of marriages end in divorce. Prenuptial agreements are a sign that the marriage is not expected to last, and whatever intentions there might be behind the current push for no-fault divorce the outcome will be a whole lot more divorce so then as christians we need this call back to god's design for marriage we need to reject the idea that if you fall out of love with your spouse or if your marriage isn't working or if you don't feel you're compatible, then you should just end it and move on. We've seen the Bible permits divorce on the grounds of sexual immorality by your spouse. And we'll see in a few moments, if your spouse is not a believer, the Bible permits divorce on the grounds of desertion by your spouse. But the Bible does not permit divorce on the grounds of discontentment with your spouse. And in this passage, it is the issue of discontentment that Paul is confronting. The idea that the grass will be greener outside of the marriage or in another marriage. Now, there are plenty of studies showing that is not the case. Those who persevere through difficulties in marriage Usually, end up with strong, fulfilling marriages on the other side of those difficulties. And no doubt Paul could have pointed that out to the Corinthians. He didn't need a modern sociological study to know that. But Paul doesn't use that argument. He doesn't say, stay together and work hard at your marriage because the marriage will very likely get better. He could have said that, but he doesn't. In fact, he doesn't give any reason at this point. He just assumes that the Lord's command will be enough for the Lord's people. And as the Lord's people today, it ought to be enough for us too. Then starting in verse 12, Paul speaks to those in mixed marriages. Those were one spouse is a believer and the other isn't. And in several places, the New Testament forbids believers from marrying unbelievers. So the only way these mixed marriages could have come about is if the marriage took place when neither spouse was a Christian and then one of them became a Christian. Remember, the New Testament was written to first-generation Christians. All of these new Christians were coming out of pagan backgrounds. They hadn't grown up in Christian families, and they hadn't been Christians when they married. So many new converts would have found themselves in a mixed marriage situation. They had come to Jesus, but their spouse hadn't. And it seems these Christian spouses may have been wondering, should I divorce my non-Christian spouse? Why might they be thinking that? Well, remember what we've already seen in this letter. Paul has been calling these Christians again and again to purity. He's told them twice that they are God's temple. And they're to preserve the holiness of that temple. He's told them to get rid of the old yeast in their lives, meaning get rid of sin. So as they heard that teaching, it might raise the question... Do I need to get out of this mixed marriage in order to stay pure and to live a life that honors God? Maybe I should swap this marriage for a Christian one. Well, in response to that, Paul says, absolutely not. Verse 12. To the rest, I say this. I, not the Lord. In other words, Jesus didn't teach on this I'm not repeating his teaching. Paul is not claiming that he's contradicting Jesus. This is just something Jesus didn't address. Nor is Paul saying this bit has less authority than the previous verses. The writers of the New Testament understood themselves to speak with authority from Jesus. In John's Gospel, he, presented, he promised that his Holy Spirit would guide them as they wrote to instruct the church. He promised the Holy Spirit would carry them along as they wrote so that what they wrote would truly be from God. Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. So Paul is not repeating here words that Jesus spoke on earth, but he knows he is speaking with Jesus' authority with words from Jesus. And so he says in verse 12, to the rest I say this, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean but as it is, they are holy. What does verse 14 mean? Well, remember what we noticed a moment ago. In this letter, Paul has told these Christians they're God's temple, and they're to preserve the holiness of that temple. Paul was taking Old Testament categories of defilement versus cleanness, And he was applying those categories to the church. And here he reassures those Christians in mixed marriages. Your marriage is not compromising your holiness. It's not making you unclean. There's nothing defiling about it. It is sanctified in the sense that it is acceptable to God. You don't need to get out of it you can remain in it and still live a life that honors God. Likewise with your children. You have no reason to hold them at arm's length. They are not unclean. So this verse is not suggesting non-Christian spouses and children are saved because of their connection to the Christian. It's saying the Christian has no reason to withdraw from them. And there is another aspect to this, another reason for the Christian to think positively about their marriage. Look down to verse 16. We'll come back to verse 15 in a moment. Verse 16 says, How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? The sense of this is positive. Christian spouse. For all you know, You might save your unconverted husband or wife. They might come to Jesus through your influence. Now this is not a promise. But it is a possibility. Because of the Christian, the rest of the family experiences a Christian influence. They will probably get to know others from the church it's possible they will be drawn to what they see and hear. There's no guarantee they will. And if they don't, that's no reason for the Christian to get out of the marriage. It's no reason to be resentful to the rest of the family who don't become Christians. What Paul is calling for is for the Christian spouse to take a certain perspective on their situation to see themselves as an agent of blessing in the situation. Not to see the situation as something to be escaped from. And as Paul says this, he is well aware being in a mixed marriage is not ideal. It will certainly have its sadness and its frustrations. Look back to verse 15. After calling the believer to stay and to live as an agent of blessing in the family, Paul acknowledges that the unbeliever might not stay. If the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. The brother or sister here is the Christian spouse. If the unbeliever decides they're not willing to stay with their now converted spouse, if they decide that's not what they signed up for, and the change in their spouse is too much for them to live with, Paul says to the Christian in that situation, accept it. Let it be so. Now, in the Corinthian culture, there was nothing the deserted spouse could do. We saw that earlier. Leaving already constituted divorce. But Paul wants to reassure the deserted spouse they are not at fault in God's eyes. They are not bound. Meaning, they are not bound to continue keeping their marriage obligations. God designed those bonds and commitments to be lifelong. But God does not hold the deserted spouse responsible for the breakup of those bonds. Assuming the Christian hasn't agitated to end the marriage, assuming they have sought to be an example of love in the marriage, then the other person's desertion doesn't make the deserted person guilty in God's eyes. So this is a word of comfort to the abandoned spouse you have lots of pain. But don't take on the additional pain of thinking you've failed God. God doesn't view your situation that way. He doesn't hold you responsible to put things back together again. When there are two Christians in the marriage, we've seen that it's different. Two people with the Holy Spirit should be able to mend things. But in mixed marriages, Paul does not put that burden on the Christian who has been abandoned. But the abandoned spouse is given a responsibility here. They're not to become bitter and vindictive towards the spouse who's left. The statement at the end of verse 15 has two sides to it. God has called us to live in peace. One side of that is, You can be at peace that the breakup doesn't make you guilty. And the other side is, as angry and betrayed as you may feel, make it your goal to live in peace with the one who has left. As far as it depends on you, don't become bitter and vindictive. That is the New Testament teaching on the big issue of divorce. If you're married, stay married. There are only two possible exceptions to that. When the other spouse won't maintain an exclusive sexual relationship with you. Or when your non-Christian spouse won't maintain their marriage relationship full stop. They leave. But whatever happens, whatever the other person does, we are to continue to speak and act, remembering our responsibility to hopefulness and peace. And to help us understand what we've just heard, Paul moves on to the bigger issue, putting circumstances in their place. And he says to all of us, married or not, live for God in your current situation. Verse 17, nevertheless, or in any case, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. So whatever your situation, look on it as a situation that has been assigned to you by God. Look on it as the situation where you are called to serve God. And this perspective is not just for some Christians in some situations. This is for all Christians in all situations. It's for all the churches, not just for Corinth. Maybe you're thinking, well, if Paul had known about my situation, then he would have made an exception. No, he wouldn't. Later on, Paul is going to agree, some situations are not good at all. We don't have to pretend they are good. And we don't always have to stay in those situations. But while we're in them we do have to see them as the situation given to us by God for serving him. And Paul starts by giving what seems to be an unusual example in verse 18. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. We know the city of Corinth was obsessed with climbing the social ladder. And there are two ways that circumcision could play into that. In certain circumstances, those who were circumcised, that's those from a Jewish background, they might find that some opportunities in society were closed to them because of their Jewishness. And so they could be tempted to try and eradicate their Jewishness in order to get on in society. And there was a medical procedure that could hide the physical effects of circumcision. On the other hand, in the church, those from a Gentile background might be tempted to be circumcised. Why? Well, at this time, the gospel is still spreading out from where? From Jerusalem. That's where the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. Most of those who are carrying the good news around the world are coming from a Jewish background. And so Gentile believers may have felt, well, I'll get more respect and maybe I'll get more opportunity in the church if I deny my background and become more Jewish. To both of those groups, those who want to climb in society and those who want to climb in the church, Paul says, you don't need to change your background. Your background wasn't a mistake. Don't think, if only my circumstances were different, If only I had the advantage that person has. Don't think like that. Think about serving God in the circumstances you have. So the message here is don't be a social climber. Don't live for that, outside or inside the church. Don't focus on where you are on the ladder that's not what counts keeping God's commands is what counts so Paul says do that in your current situation in the circumstances God has given you then Paul gives a second example and as he gives this one he ups the stakes verse 21 were you a slave when you were called don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. Historians tell us the population of Corinth was divided three ways. Approximately one third were slaves, one third were emancipated slaves, and one third were free-born citizens. We also know from earlier in this letter the church probably didn't Match that equal division in society into three roughly equal sections. It seems that not many in the church were freeborn citizens. Possibly the majority of Christians were either slaves or they had been slaves. And so this is a hot topic. It's important to remember the kind of slavery we're dealing with here is not the chattel slavery that Britain and America would be involved in later in history. In the first century, people in financial difficulties would often sell themselves into slavery. It provided a wage, and so slaves could be well-educated. They often ended up doing quite responsible jobs. But that doesn't mean it was a pleasant situation whatever responsible work a slave might do, he or she was still the property of their owner. And an unkind owner could make things very, very bad. So the key issue was not so much the fact of being a slave, the key issue was whose slave you were. A good master would treat you as an employee, they would protect you and provide for you, bad master would abuse and exploit you. And so as a result many slaves were focused on saving up to try and buy their freedom. The Christian slaves may have been really envious of the free men and women in the church. And so what Paul says would have been shocking. Don't let it trouble you. The last part of the verse shows that Paul is not insisting people must stay in difficult circumstances. Earlier, remember, he said circumcision is nothing. Here, he does not say slavery is nothing. Paul does not believe slavery is an indifferent thing. He supports slaves in gaining their freedom but he also tells slaves don't obsess about gaining your freedom don't fixate on that in the first half of the verse don't let it trouble you has the sense of don't be preoccupied with it if the opportunity comes of course take it but don't live for that change in your circumstances live for God Serve him where you are. Do you feel you have less opportunities than other people do? That's okay. God does not expect you to be in other people's shoes. Use the opportunities you do have right now. Don't just put your service for God on hold while you wait for those ideal circumstances to serve. Don't go through your days saying, when I get to that greener grass over there, when this pain and this unpleasantness is over, then I'll see how I can serve and honor God. But until then, my focus has to be on getting out of this situation. No. See how you can serve and honor God not. None of us here are officially slaves. But some of you may feel you are trapped in ugly circumstances. You may be in a situation that is genuinely oppressive. Maybe an employment situation or something else. And if you have an opportunity to change that without disobeying God... And of course, you can take that opportunity. But these verses are not talking about that opportunity that might come. They're talking about now, today. God is not kicking his heels waiting for the day when your situation changes so he can finally work through you. No, God is ready to work for you and through you now. He's ready to use you to glorify him now. And he will not be comparing your service to what other people can do in their situation. He will be pleased with what you do in your situation. So don't obsess about what might happen in the future. Don't go through the days and weeks saying to yourself, if only. Don't put your availability to God on hold because you're consumed with getting out of this, whatever it is, or getting into that. Don't think that's the key to happiness and fulfillment and effectiveness. Paul has used the example of circumcision to challenge those who are obsessed with climbing the social ladder. He's used the example of slavery to challenge those in genuinely unpleasant situations. And his challenge is the same in both cases. Live for God in your current situation. How can we do that? How can we get a perspective that will enable us to do that? We get a right perspective by remembering our true status. We are privileged servants of God. Look at verse 22. For the one who is a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was, a, who was free when called is Christ's slave. We've seen that Corinth was divided into slaves, emancipated slaves, that's freed people, and freeborn citizens. When Paul teaches Christians how to think of ourselves, we might expect him to say, think of yourselves as freeborn citizens in Christ, people who are answerable to no one. But Paul doesn't say that. He uses the other two terms, slaves and freed slaves. The freed person was not unattached. He or she was not independent. Usually, they didn't leave their master at all. Their master became their patron. It's only because of their master they were able to gain their freedom. And from then on, the master would look after the freed slave. The slave would often continue working for their master. And what Paul wants everyone in the church to see is, yes, your circumstances are often very different from one another, but your true status is not. Those of you who are officially free, that doesn't mean your life is yours to use as you want you have a master you belong to Christ your life is not your own use it to serve your master and those of you who are officially in slavery you have been set free by Christ your greatest bonds have been broken your slavery to sin and death is over So don't obsess about your human status as a slave. Realize your Lord is looking after you. He has not abandoned you. And you can serve and please him. No matter how unpleasant or restricted your human circumstances might be. Verse 23 says you were bought at a price. The price of Christ's blood poured out on the cross. So, do not become slaves of human beings. In other words, don't be ruled by a fixation about how you stand with human beings. Don't obsess about where you are on the ladder. Or how you're doing in comparison with other people in their situations. Learn to put circumstances in their place. If you're a Christian your true standing is already taken care of and it could not be higher you belong to God so then brothers and sisters live for God in your own unique situation one preacher puts it like this don't live a life cramped cramped by the misunderstanding that your earthly circumstances are why you are alive. You are alive for something much bigger and much better than that. You are alive for God. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help. We need your help as we try to take this to heart and then live it out. If some of us have been thinking, if only I was married, or if only I was married to someone else, or if only I had more friends, if only I had a different job, If only I had better health. Whatever it is. Whatever it is, we are personally tempted to make the key to our happiness and our usefulness. We ask you to give us a new perspective. While we are in these circumstances, whether that's a short time or a long time, Will you help us to see them as the circumstances we have been given by you so that we might live for you, keeping your commands, pursuing peace, seeking to glorify your name, and hopeful that you will use us for good. We ask this, remembering what an honor it is to serve the living God who bought us at such a cost. Amen. Let's respond as we sing, King of Kings, Majesty.